Abraham's life. And this morning, we're going to meet the God who reigns. Uh, Incidentally, we could get introduced to this aspect of God's character by any number of biblical writers. Isaiah could introduce us to this, any of the prophets, any of the gospel writers, the apostle Paul, Moses, the patriarchs, uh, Jesus himself, which is to say that the sovereignty of God is taught throughout the Bible, but this morning I'm delighted to say that it will be the psalmist who will make the introduction for us. So if you can turn to Psalm 93. Let me just say here at the outset as we get started, because maybe some of you are here, maybe you've experienced this or this is your feeling even as you're here right now. I have not always loved the notion of the total sovereignty of God. And as a matter of fact, I despised it. And even as a believer, took up arms against it. In one case, I mean that not figuratively. Uh, I vehemently opposed the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And without going into all that story, there's maybe for another time, another place, but I'm grateful that God has many attributes because uh, he was forbearing with me and he was patient with me and long-suffering in the midst of my ignorance and my arrogance and pride. And I'm convinced in the irony and humor of God that it was the sovereign grace of God that rescued me from my hatred of the sovereign grace of God. <laughs> and so here I am this morning in that instance as well as a hundred other instances in life since then, glad that God reigns. And uh, want to rejoice in this passage. Don't just want to teach this passage. We want to rejoice in this passage together. So before we dive in, would you join me in praying? Lord, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. And we are your people, and we submit ourselves underneath the authority and the truthfulness of your word, and we pray, speak, O Lord, and help us to hear. Help us to have a listening ear. Lord, I pray, not so much, Lord, this week, my prayer has not so much been that we would come away with a tidy doctrine of the sovereignty of God, so much as we would come away feeling in our souls that it's good that God reigns. It's good that you're sovereign. And so, Lord, communicate this truth to our hearts in a way that we leave that way, rejoicing as did the psalmist in the reign and sovereignty of our God. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with a little exercise in biblical logic and employing uh, Romans 15.4 to guide our thinking in this. And I, I think this is valuable, if for no other reason, than initially some of us, when we hear that the message is going to be on the sovereignty of God, can have the reaction, because we're, we're more wired into pragmatism, and our response can be, oh, sovereignty, okay. I was hoping to come in and here's something that would help me live life in a real world. But I guess this morning, you know, we're gonna do the heady, theological, abstract theory stuff. That's all right. And if that's our response, I think the Bible wants to adjust that because the sovereignty of God has everything to do with our lives. It can certainly be treated in a way that when we preach on it or when we teach on it, we could theoretically teach on it in a way that sounds like abstract theology that has no connection to our lives, but that's not what God intends when he puts sovereignty in his word, he puts this doctrine in his word, he intends for it to communicate blessing, comfort, strength, security, stability 
to his people. And Romans 15.4, I think, tells us something of this. It says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that, in other words, that's a purpose clause, for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I think if we phrase that out and we cut away to its irreducible essence, that verse is saying what I put in italics there. For whatever was written that is in the scriptures, whatever, everything in the Bible was written so that we might have hope. What does that mean? Well, in general, it means that when you're reading or I'm reading this Thursday morning, it doesn't matter what passage I'm reading. If I come away instructed but without hope, I'm not finished with the passage. And the passage isn't finished with me. Everything that was written in Scripture was written to give the believer hope. The one who has turned from sin and put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ is supposed to come away from every passage with hope. Now, what does that mean in relation to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? I want to put it in sort of syllogistic form, kind of a, a proposition, another proposition, and that leads to a firm conclusion. Proposition number one, here's the first statement. Everything in the Bible was written to give hope to God's people. It's clearly from Romans 15.4. Everything in the Bible is written to give hope to God's people. Proposition two, the Bible is full of portraits of the sovereignty of God. If you like syllogisms, you know where this is going. Therefore, if those two things are true, therefore, the sovereignty of God is a hope-giving doctrine. The sovereignty of God is rightly understood a hope-giving doctrine because everything the Bible's written to give me hope as a believer and the Bible's full of portraits of the sovereignty of God, therefore I may conclude that God's sovereignty is something that offers hope to the Christian. And in this world, I can't overdose on hope. (laughs) I need more hope than I can handle because there will be seasons in my life and your life where you feel like you have more trouble than you can handle. And so we need to stock up on hope hope. Every one of us this morning needs to stock up on hope. And to those who need hope, the psalmist writes these words, verse 1, the Lord reigns. (laughs) Oh, we could just worship right now. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. The Lord reigns. This is the unalterable reality that the psalmist is pointing us to. God reigns. Of course he does. He's God. Reigning is what a God does. This is not controversial for the psalmist. This is not the stuff of controversy. This is the stuff of worship, of wonder, of awe that God reigns. Think about the bedrock truths of the Bible. I think deeper and deeper, go all the way down till it seems we're at the very bottom shelf, the foundation on which everything else in the Bible rests. And what are those truths? What are those handful of truths that are at the very bottom? God is? Maybe that's the bottom. (laughs) Hebrews says that if, if we don't have faith, we can't please God. For whoever comes to God must believe what? That he is So that's bottom line. When Moses goes to deliver the people from Egypt and he says, God, what do I tell them when they turn around and say, who underwrites this? Who's going to really get us out from underneath the king of the world? Moses, could you give me the credentials of this God? 
And he says, what do I say to them when they ask me that? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. So there's the bottom, right? God is. But maybe once we say God is, having established that, maybe the next thing to say is that God reigns. I think a massively comprehensive statement about the message of the entire Bible could be the God who is reigns. There's certainly more to it than that, but we've, we're on to something really big when we say that. And I think that is the essence of what Moses' message was for Pharaoh. When he comes to Pharaoh and he says, in, in more ways than one, the Lord reigns. And you've got his people, and he wants his people back. And he preaches that message in Pharaoh's courts through words, and he preaches it through the rod, and he preaches it through frogs, and gnats, and flies, and cow tipping, and all of these (laughs) wild and crazy things. And in plague after plague after plague, God is saying, Pharaoh You should just let the people go. I'm not getting tired. I can do this all day long. It's my world. They're my flies. They're my gnats. That's my ocean. Because I'm the Lord. And maybe you haven't heard, but the Lord reigns. And that was God's message to Pharaoh. It's God's message throughout the whole of Scripture. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. This psalm goes on to say more about the reign of God. Look in verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. This verse reminds us that our God is no upstart sovereign. His throne is from of old. The God of Israel never began to reign. See, when the Babylonians came into power and they exiled the people of God, They thought Marduk did this, and so they established this yearly annual enthronement festival for Marduk, because Marduk, you the man, you got us in, we're the superpower, it is the Babylonian empire at the top of the hill in the world. And so they had this enthronement festival for for Marduk, and Israel never did that, and I, I think the reason is theological, because Israel believed that their God has always reigned. No matter what is going on, our God reigns. The God of Israel has reigned from everlasting. His throne is from of old. Psalm 93, verse 1, the verse we just looked at, takes us back beyond God's superpower displays in the exodus of his people from Egypt. It actually takes us back to the first page of our Bibles. Where in an act of unrivaled power, God established the world and spoke the earth into existence. It says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. This is God, the creator of all things, the sovereign one who reigns and rules over all. And in that sense, this psalm harkens back to one of the great psalms. How many psalm lovers do we have here? Yeah. I think... I think if Casey Kasem had a top 10, if he was a psalm expert, he would put Psalm 24 in his top 10. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in it. This is a sovereign God who is over all things. But even here, it's not as though God became sovereign 
with creation. It's not as though he was making all these things and saying, okay, let there be grass and trees and water and, and I'd like a big throne. It, God's throne didn't come with creation. God's sovereignty didn't come after Genesis 1. Genesis 1 happened because God was sovereign before Genesis 1. He has reigned from of old. His throne is from everlasting. This is why I think theologian and author R.C. Sproul says that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is God's favorite doctrine. And that if you were God, it would be your favorite doctrine too. (laughs) Because it means that you get to be God. The biblical language for this is very clear. You can look at Isaiah 46 where God sort of instructing his people and saying, look, if someone claims that they follow the one true and living God, ask him if his God can do this. Ask him if his God knows the end from the beginning and all of his purposes are fulfilled, every single one of them. Ask him in a word, is his God sovereign? Because when I call a bird of prey from the east, God says in Isaiah 46, a bird of prey comes, and it doesn't come from the west. It comes from the east. And if I say a kingdom's going to fall on Tuesday morning, it won't fall on Tuesday afternoon. It will fall on Tuesday morning because I'm sovereign in a word that simply means I'm God. And the one who is able to know the end from the beginning and say all of my purposes shall be fulfilled, that one, that one with absolute sovereignty gets to be called God. And the ones who don't have absolute sovereignty get to be called something else, non-gods. That could fall into maybe three categories. They get to be called men (laughs) because we are not sovereign even though we try to be. Or they get to be called part of creation, trees and clouds and air and water and stuff like that. So they get to be called men or part of creation or false gods. That's it. There is God and there is everything else. And God is sovereign, which is another way of saying God is God. I am not sovereign. The devil is not sovereign. Mother nature is not sovereign. The church is not sovereign. Fate and luck are not sovereign. God alone is sovereign. So the psalmist here has proclaimed two things. That God reigns in majesty and in strength and that God's throne is as old as he is. Psalm 93, if you will, presents an eternal God who sits on an eternal throne. And his people need to know this. And the reason for that is the next verse. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. The sovereignty of God is not a challenging thought for Christians who are living life in a season where everything is fine and all is well. That's, that's not the time when it's hard and challenging to believe in the sovereignty of God. It's a challenge to believe in the sovereignty of God when it feels like the world is upside down and waves around us are making noise and troubles are all around us. This psalm doesn't come to a jubilant people in the Old Testament. Uh, This psalm doesn't come when everything was going well in Israel. 
and they were in the golden age of history. No, these were hard times for Israel. The Psalms, as we find them here, were written and collected over hundreds of years, well over 500 years. And by the time they were collected in the way that we find them in our Bibles was probably around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. This is after the Babylonian captivity. In other words, King David has been dead for 500 years. And then Solomon gave us another good 40, and the golden age of Israel basically lasted 80 years. And then Solomon dies, and then his sons divide the kingdom. It's split in two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the southern kingdom, the line of David continued, Davidic king after Davidic king after another. And about 200 years after Solomon, the northern kingdom fell to the captivity of the Assyrian Empire, and they carted them off out of their own land into exile. And it wasn't too, too much longer when the southern kingdom was captured by Babylon. And Babylon was a big enough fish to not only eat the southern kingdom, but to eat Assyria with it. And now they're under the Babylonian Empire. And not too long after that, the Persians would be an even bigger fish to eat Babylon. So you can feel the instability of the people. Okay, who's the king again? Is it Cyrus, Darius, Nebuchadnezzar? Which, who's up now? Who's at the top of the hill? Who are we answering to? Who are we paying taxes to? These were subjugated people. Under Persian rule, the Jewish people, you can read some of this in Daniel, were allowed to trickle back into Jerusalem. They were even allowed to build the temple again. It was, albeit, not nearly as glorious as Solomon's temple in days of old. But they built a temple, and it did the job. And they were allowed to worship, provided they behaved properly. They were allowed to kind of practice their cultural religious practices. But at the end of the day, they're not a nation anymore. They're living, they're, they're, they're renting space in the Persian Empire. And they're living under the thumb of pagan rulers. These were tumultuous times for God's people. The floods had lifted up their voice in Israel. Bear in mind who these people are and what they believed about God. God had made promises to them. And those promises had to do with David's offspring sitting on the throne for all generations. Forever there would be a king on David's throne. So they believed, but that wasn't happening today. God's promises had to do with God's people having their own land in which they would worship God, and that wasn't happening God's promises had to do with God's people living in peace and resting from the endless conflict that had marked so much of their history, and that wasn't happening either. And I think that makes some of the Psalms feel more realistic, have more living blood in them. Consider, in light of that, consider Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept. What are they doing in Babylon? They're exiles. They've been taken out of their land. They're in Babylon. There we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The floods, can you hear them? The floods have lifted up 
their voice in Israel. Psalm 74. Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. In other words, God, come and see Jerusalem. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. How many of you remember coming in this place the very first Sunday we worshiped God together here? Remember? You remember the sound, the roar of the praise of God's people in this room? Imagine hearing that sound, becoming familiar with that sound, the rejoicing, the celebration of God's people, and then everything crashes down. And you're not only away from this place, but you have no place to worship and to offer sacrifices year after year after year after year, and you drive past the place where you worshiped God, you dedicated your children, and you say, it's in charred ruins. And and the only sound, that's what they say here, the only sound we hear is not the sound of the roar of the people of God worshiping our one true and living God. The only sound we hear, Lord, when we pass the old sanctuary are the mocking voices and the howling roars of our enemies. These are challenging days to affirm the sovereignty of God, that God reigns. This is what it sounds like when the floods lift up their voice and there are a hundred modern equivalents in this room. Maybe I thought that by this time I would have been married and have children, but I'm still single. And I'm living in the fear that I'm gonna live the rest of my life single or I'm hounded by depression and the darkness closes and it comes out of nowhere and I don't know which way is up and it's like my mind is stuck in tar and the only thought that I can focus on is the very thought that sends me toppling further down, further down. The floods have lifted up their voice. I have adult children who won't come into the same room with me. The floods lift up their voice. The doctors have said there's nothing else they can do. The floods have lifted up their voice. It's official. We're going to lose the house. The floods have lifted up their voice. We've all heard the floods. Some of us this morning are hearing the floods. Some people sitting next to you this morning are hearing the floods lifting up their voice. If you don't know that, join the prayer chain. Join the prayer chain and read the reports day after day, week after week. And what you hear every time you read that email, you're hearing the floods lifting up their voice. Listen, when you come in here, don't let the smiles fool you. There are people in this room who can hardly hear the encouragement that you're trying to give them. Why? Because the floods have lifted up their voice. That's all they can hear. They're not hearing the Lord reigns. They're hearing the floods churning, the waves, the pressures of life. And this is why one of the primary reasons, this is one of the primary reasons why in this church, by the grace of God, we want to commit to sing a high view of the sovereignty of God. 
to preach a high view, to counsel a high view of the sovereignty of God. The reason? Because those unsettled, destabilized souls that are hearing the floodwaters need to hear that your Lord reigns. He is God over the floods. He has established the world and it shall never be moved and that is your God. The floods are noisy, they are tumultuous, but that is not the last word of this psalm. This psalm began with hope and this psalm will end with hope. Look at the next verse. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring But mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. There is one who is mightier than the floods in our lives, the trials of our lives, and that is the Lord. Let me say something about the arrangement and the structure of these psalms. These psalms were collected and pulled together. It's basically five mini hymnals. And they're not ordered chronologically. So you can read a psalm of David, then a psalm from somebody who wrote after David, then another psalm of David, then a psalm of Moses. So they're not arranged chronologically. They're arranged to tell a story. They're arranged thematically. There's movement in the psalms. Each book moves you forward from tragedy to triumph, from lamenting to glory. Look at this quote from Reggie Kidd. The organization of the Psalter reminds us not only of the law of Moses, but of a pilgrimage through which God is taking his people. The Psalter helps to tell the story of a journey from suffering to glory and from lament to praise. One statistical detail tells the tale. In books one through three, Psalms one through 89, so-called laments, cries of despair, outnumber hymns of praise by little more than two to one. There are two cries of despair and anguish to every one hymn of praise in the first 89 chapters of the book of Psalms. While in books four and five, Psalms 90 through 150, the proportion is reversed and actually amplified. Here, hymns of praise outnumber laments seven to three. And here we are in book four, the beginning of book four, and everything is beginning to change and move forward to something else, a different picture There's movement in the theme, development of the Psalms. God is unfolding a story for his people, a story that moves from the wreckage of the fall to the restoration of creation, from anguish in the early pages of the Psalms until Psalm 150 where we break out the trumpets and tambourines and everything that has breath will praise the Lord. See where this is going. This is the hope. In in a sense, the Psalms' collected voice all together, all 150 of them are saying, to borrow from a psalm, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. At the end of the day, the Lord delivers them out of them all. That's what the psalm as a whole, all five hymnals are saying. This is the story of God's people. Suffering to glory is our story. But how will he deliver us? There's no question about the capacity of God in Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He established the earth. It's not gonna be a problem. He's got strength as his belt. He can do whatever in the world he wants to, but how is he going to deliver us from the troubles that vex us 
in this life? And how, more significantly even than that, how is he going to deliver us from our most fearsome enemies, from the loudest floods that could ever face a human being, the floods of the just wrath of God against our sins, the flood of hell saying, I want you and you've sinned and I'm gonna get you. That's the flood, that's the mighty cosmic flood that we hear. How is God going to deliver his people? And the answer to that question has everything to do with these trustworthy decrees that we find in verse five. Your decrees are very trustworthy. God had made promises. God's decrees, also translated testimonies, God's promises, God's words. God's words and promises are very trustworthy. And so here in Psalm 93, there is both a forward-looking horizon and a rear-view mirror that looks back to the faithfulness of God. And that's what he's saying here. In a way, the first four verses are standing us and saying, be comforted, people of God, because God is sovereign and powerful. Verse five says, be comforted, people of God, because God will keep his word. God will do what he said he will do. And, and God had made promises to these people about King David, about David's son, David's offspring, who would reign, who would be mighty, who would protect his people, who would still the storms of life. And interesting, we're at the beginning of book four, at the very end of all those laments, 89 chapters with lots and lots of sorrow and lament, and in the very last chapter of book three, flip over to Psalm 89. Look at Psalm 90, it might say in your Bible, book four. The very last chapter of Psalm 89, God, if you will, comes to his people and says, I haven't forgotten about my promise to David. I will send someone who will sit on David's throne and he will conquer for you. Look at verse 20. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. This is music in these people's ears. Verse 24, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is what God's people needed to hear, that the promise wasn't obsolete, that God was still good for his promise to his people about David and the throne that would be established forever. See, we we saw it last week, that God had made promises to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is huge in the Old Testament presentation of the character of God. And Abraham came to many points in his life, as we learned last week, where he was tempted to doubt the promises of God, tempted to doubt God's word, and he had to believe against the circumstances that somehow God is gonna raise up my son after he's dead. It makes no sense, but somehow God is going to do that. And these people, at this time in history, when they're under the thumb of Persian rule, and there's nobody for the first time in the history of Judah, 
Since King David, there's no successor on David's throne. And they thought, what became of the promise to David? I thought that throne would never be empty. But it is. And somehow these people, and God wanted to posture them so that they could believe, despite the circumstances and how things look today, somehow a son in the lineage of David is going to get back on a throne. And everything will be different. And all of the waves and the tumult of our lives will be over because he will rule from that throne. Isaiah 9, 7 said, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. They hadn't experienced this yet, right? They were looking forward to this. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the deliverer, David's long-promised son, would come. God's testimonies are very trustworthy. Isn't it interesting, though, in light of that, that the very first words in the New Testament, when they identify who Christ is, notice what they say. Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Translation, what God said was true. God's decrees and his testimonies are very trustworthy. He made promises. He told Abraham to look up into the sky and count the stars and your offspring through your seed, the whole world will be blessed, even the Gentiles. And here's the son of Abraham. And here's the son of David. He had come to live a perfect life. He had come to die on the cross in our place for our sins and he would rise again on the third day, and in the resurrection of Jesus, God was saying, this is the forever king. God vindicated every claim that Jesus made. God was saying in the resurrection, I told you I would send a conqueror. That's him. Therefore, Philippians 2 says, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, including Cyrus, Darius, Nebuchadnezzar, and all the rest of them. His name is above every name, and every knee will bow before this sovereign, reigning, conquering Christ. He's up from the grave. God's promises were true. God made a statement to all of his people and says through the resurrection of Christ, I didn't lie to David. I didn't lie to Israel. For the believer, the resurrection signals that the most fearsome floodwaters, death and God's righteous judgment for our many sins have been conquered by Christ the Lord. <laughs> Look at this quote from Reggie Kidd. So why the effusive outpouring of praise at the end of the Psalms? Psalms 146 through 150, it seems to me, are Psalms that look to the end of history. The final cluster of Psalms opens out onto a promise that transcends the boundaries of Israel's history. Israel's journey was a pilgrimage that awaited another chapter, the day when God would, as Psalm 2 promised, raise up Messiah. God's people drafted the Psalter to sustain themselves in that hope. I love this. They knew that one day God and they would have the last laugh. 
Centuries later, the early believers of Acts 4 recognized that when God raised his son from the dead, the time for laughter had come. (laughs) Yes, it had. And when we come to the book of Revelation, the forevermore of Psalm 93, verse 5, God speaks comfort in the future to his storm-tossed people. And what is it that God says? Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. When God comes at the end of time, when history closes as we know it, he comes and speaks consummate comfort to his people. Once and for all, comfort to his people. And notice Notice the basis for that comfort. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Why? Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. See, the challenge for the belief of God's people in Psalm 93 is that there's a tension in the chapter. There's a tension in this song. The tension is between two verses, verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 2 has the throne of God established from of old, right? Representing the sovereign power of God over his world. And verse 3 has the floods lifting up their voice. There's the tension. Because I believe that God is sovereign, but what I hear is chaos, what I see on the news is chaos. And, and the sea represented in ancient cultures, not just Israel, but in ancient cultures, the sea represented chaos and evil that couldn't be controlled or tamed by anyone. And this is not the last time, though, in Psalm 93 where we would see in two verses back to back the sovereign throne of God and the sea. We actually see it in Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. Verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 5 is a throne. Verse 6 is a sea. But the sea doesn't sound like it did in Psalm 93. (laughs) It says, from the throne, there it is, came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Psalm 89 had been fulfilled. Jesus Christ was a forever king, the promised son of David, and he set his hand on the sea, and it was tamed. And he quieted the floods, and the the loud voices of the condemnation of the people of God, and he quieted the floods of all of the day-to-day perplexities and troubles and trials. Because mightier than the floods, as verse four says, the Lord on high is mighty. This hymn was written and composed in the middle of a most uncivil civil war by Robert Lowry and Ira Sankey, and you'll notice it could have been that Lowry and Sankey were meditating on Psalm 93 because listen to the allusions in this hymn and how comfort is leveraged for God's people. My life goes on in endless song above earth's lamentations. I hear the real though far off hymn. Isn't that reality? 
It's a real hymn. The hymn of victory is a real hymn, but it's a far off. I hear the real though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Above the tumult and the strife, I hear its music ringing. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? What though my joys and comforts die? The Lord my Savior liveth, and though the darkness round me close, songs in the night he giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. How can I keep from singing? So God says to us this morning that there will come a day when all of the floodwaters will no longer lift up their voice in our hearts, in our minds, in our day-to-day lives. We can be assured of this because Jesus Christ, the son of David, has mounted his throne and he is the Lord. And lest God's people ever forget it, the Lord reigns over all. He is sovereign. Take comfort. Take comfort. God's sovereignty is good news. (laughs) It means history will land where he said it was gonna land. And not, let's not be so cosmic. It means your life is going to land where he said it would land. Rejoicing in the presence of God with everybody else in Psalm 150, tambourine in hand, singing the praises of a sovereign God. Let's stand together. Lord, we rejoice in your sovereignty. And we pray that you would settle our hearts in the midst of the floods that are making noise. Settle our hearts that we would hear with increasing volume the real though far off hymn that hails a new creation. God, may we be a people who long for and anticipate the glories of heaven Lord, we don't want to be earth-bound saints. We want to fix our eyes on a city without, a city with foundations, a city whose builder and maker is God. God, give us eternal scope, but help us to realize how kind you've been to us, sustaining us in these present trials. We pray, Lord, for more faith. Faith to trust you while we live in the tension of verse two and verse three. There is a throne that is from of old and there are floods that are making noise. Convince us that you are sovereign and that is good for us and we can trust you now and for the future. In Jesus' name, amen. When peace-